scripture lesson reading today comes from Revelation chapters 21 and 22. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like most, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Rosalie. Don't worry, I, I did apologize in advance for the names of all those jewels. She did, a, she did an excellent job. So uh, back when I was a, uh, a younger man uh, and an eligible bachelor once upon a time, and I was in pursuit of uh, who I would spend the rest of my life with, I was given some advice uh, for better or for worse, about how to... If you want to know uh, who a young woman will turn out to be, you need to look at her mother. <laughs> and uh, now this is not completely fair, and I, I, I sense some of you going, hmm, hmm. 
And I, I get it. I get it because it's not fair because a lot of women turn out to be completely different than their mothers. And some people are trying on purpose to not <laughs> turn out to be like their mothers. And, and I'm really glad at this moment I didn't preach this sermon on Mother's Day uh, last week. But nonetheless, but I, I think maybe it's sometimes, maybe it's maybe often true uh, the, the greatest influence upon uh, who a young woman grows up to be is her mother. And sometimes, uh, and sometimes they look similar because of genetics. Uh, sometimes they act similar and have similar personalities and character. But for whatever reason, I, uh, I, I, I grabbed a hold of this advice. And so with this advice in my head, it made the first time I met April's mom uh, all the more uh, interesting, uh, to say the least. I actually met uh, Brenda, is her name, Brenda Johnson. I met her actually by chance on April and I's first date. So our first official date, we went to uh, a throwback drive-in movie theater in East Tennessee. So I borrowed my friend's old Jeep, his old CJ7, and we drove over to the old drive-in and, and we watched a movie, which is amazing, right? That's a great, that's a great first date. Well, that drive-in movie theater happened to be uh, near where April's parents live, and so we decided to just drop in afterwards for an impromptu visit. So this was my moment, right? This was my chance to get a preview of April's future. Now, it was late. It was like 10 p.m., and April's dad had been in bed for hours. Uh, and so, But her mom was there, and she agreed for us to stop by, and so this is it. This is my moment, right? She comes and she greets me at the door, and this is what she looks like. She's in her nightgown. Uh, she has no makeup on, and her hair is up in curlers uh, for the night, which is just amazing. And uh, I loved it. We had a great visit. She would tell me later, she thought, I'm probably never going to see this guy again, so what does it matter? Uh, what do I look like? But friends, in this way, actually, uh, in a lot of ways, April is not like her mom, but in this way, she was an exact preview of who April was and is today. She is who she is, right? What you see is what you get. She's not out to impress you. She's not out to put up a front. She is authentically herself at all times. I tell you that story because, uh, brothers and sisters, if you want to know who the church is going to grow up to be, you got to look at this vision that we just read in Revelation 21 and 22. This is actually a vision of what the bride of Christ will become. This is the grand conclusion of the book of Revelation and of the Bible as a whole, and it is a glorious vision of the church. This is what we will look like in the end, symbolically speaking. If you notice in verse 9, the angel says, Come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And in verse 10, what do we see? We're shown a city. A holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And what that means is that the city is the bride. The bride is the city. It's all a symbolism of the church. The glorious, completed, perfected, finished product that is the goal of the whole story of redemption. This is our future. And if this is our future, I think it has at least two implications for the way that we live in the present. First of all, it should shape what we care about. Just shape what we care about. Think about it. By this point in the book, in the, in the story of the Bible, I mean, we're one chapter from the end. We're, we're almost there. And so many things have passed away. Mourning, crying, pain, 
and death, like all the former things have passed away, even the old heaven and earth. But if we read the rest of Scripture, we know even things like money and marriage have passed away. Faith and hope are no longer needed in the new world. All these things have passed away, but what remains in the end is the church. And it strikes me so much that so much of our time and attention and energy is spent now on things that are temporal. And so little of our time and attention and energy is spent on things that are eternal. I'm trying to remember this right now as I'm selling a house and buying a house. My, my job, my house, even my family are temporal. The family of God is eternal. At the end of all things, the church remains. So if you're thinking, I don't, I'm not sure I care that much about the state of the church on earth, it should help us shape what we care about. But secondly, and the most the main point of the sermon, it should shape what we are trying to become in the present. There's a missiologist by the name of Leslie Newbigin, I quote him often. He says that the church should never be defined by what it is now, but only by what it is becoming. Listen to what he writes. I put this quote in front of your bulletin as well, if you're a visual learner. He says, the church is the pilgrim people of God. It is on the move hastening to the ends of the earth to beseech all men to be reconciled to God and hastening to the end of time to meet its Lord, who will gather all into one. Therefore, the nature of the church is never to be fully defined in static terms, but only in terms of that to which it is going. That's what that means. Your mission, O church, should you choose to accept it, is to study this vision of the church in Revelation to see what we will become in the end, and then to begin anticipating that future now by living it in the present. It's like if you knew you were going to, if you were a student, you're going to spend a semester abroad in Spain, and you're probably going to prepare by learning the language and the customs and the culture ahead of time. So the same is true. If this is the final vision of the church, we can prepare for it by learning and living the life of heaven now. Now, you need to know we will never do it perfectly on this side. The church is still very much in progress. So don't give in to cynicism. We are not yet there. But, but by the power of the Spirit, we can begin already to become what we will be. So don't give in to apathy. In the midst of the already and the not yet, this is our mission. And I say that because this is actually the intentional design of the book of Revelation. So the last time I preached on Revelation, it was two weeks ago, I tried to show how Revelation 21 and 22 are mirrored to be like Genesis 1 and 2. It's like the old creation is giving way to the new heavens and the new earth. The redemption of everything we lost in the garden comes together and it looks like the complete absence of sin and the complete presence of God. But today, I want you to see how Revelation 21 and 22 are mirrored intentionally to be like Revelation 2 and 3. If you remember, way back in the beginning of this series, that's where we saw these seven letters to seven imperfect, struggling, suffering churches in first century Asia. And here, we see the perfected, victorious, glorified church of the future. 
Again, I don't have time to go into all the details, but scholars have spent a lot of time showing how all the unique promises that were given to each of the seven churches back in Revelation 2 and 3 are fulfilled, each one of them, in Revelation 21 and 22. So, for example, in Revelation 2, 7, the church in Ephesus was promised to eat of the tree of life. And what shows up in Revelation 22, 2? The tree of life. Or how in Revelation 3, 5, the church in Sardis is promised clean white garments and that their names will be written in the book of life, which is fulfilled in Revelation 21, 27. The exact same thing happens for all seven churches. And the point is, this isn't just a, a, a kind of a cool Bible trick. This is the author's way of telling those churches then and ours today, you are not defined by what you are now. You are defined but what you will be. So here's the vision of what you will be so you can start living it right now. That was the point. So what is this glorious vision of the church? What is the future that we are to anticipate now in the present? I would like to summarize it, what we just read, in three ways. First of all, the first is that the church should be a place of glory. The church should be a place of glory. Now, I'm sure when the struggling first century churches, or the churches in Revelations 2 and 3, I, I imagine when they came together for worship, it didn't feel very glorious. Probably had maybe a few dozen worshipers gathering in ordinary houses to sing ordinary songs, to eat ordinary bread and wine. It probably didn't seem like a glorious thing especially in comparison to the glorious cities where they lived, as we read about all their wealth and extravagance, the magnificent temples to pagan deities. Maybe the same is true. Maybe it doesn't feel glorious when you gather here while everyone else enjoys the sunshine or, or a nice brunch and not listening to some guy talk for about 30 minutes. You might be asking, so this is where the glory of God dwells on earth? This is the glorious bride of Christ. And if you remember back in Revelation 17, when the city of Babylon was described, if you remember, the city of Babylon was symbolic of the, the representative of the city of man. And, and that city, too, was described as a beautiful woman. Verse, Revelation 17 says she was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. In other words, Babylon is advertising herself as true glory. Her wealth, her pleasure, her luxury is the glory you should seek after. But in the end, she is revealed as the great harlot that she actually is. A knockoff, a cheap version of what your heart really longs for. And now, alas, another woman shows up and she is stunning. Look at verse 11. Having the glory of God. A radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. This is not the great harlot, it's the great bride. It's the beloved church of God, and she is truly glorious. She is radiant. Brothers and sisters, I want you to notice what it is that makes her so glorious. She is Represented, yes, by precious jewels that are rare and costly. And that should tell you something about the priceless quality of the church that has been bought with the precious blood of Christ. 
But all these jewels, all those ones that Rosaline read, all the ones listed in verses 18 to 21, they all have one purpose, and that is to reflect the glory of God. The glory of the church is a reflected glory. It does not come from within. It comes from without. We are the moon. He is the sun. We are radiant only as we reflect the glory of God. All the symbolism of this chapter points to this great reality. Do you hear it over and over again? There's no temple in the city, but the temple is the Lord God himself and the Lamb. There's no sun or moon to shine on the city, for the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Even the dimensions, <laughs> reading all these dimensions of, of, the, of the city being measured, in, first, in verse 15, it comes out to be a perfect cube. That's strange. <laughs> the city is a cube. But that's intentional because that means the dimensions, these are the exact dimensions of the Holy of Holies, which was in the temple. That room was an exact cube. But this one is magnified to make a humongous cubed city, 1,400 miles in each direction. Again, this is not literal. It's a symbolic way to say that the white, hot, blazing glory of God that was once contained in a cubed room in the temple, now it fills the whole city. And when the city is made of such fine jewels, can you imagine the glorious sight? Light, color, beauty reflecting everywhere. Friends, this is all symbolism to say that the church should be a place of glory and a drab world. And what makes the church glorious in the future and now is not our building, it's not our people, it's not our liturgy or our music or our money, it's the fact that God dwells among us. Verse 11, having the glory of God, she is radiant. What makes the church, the church is the presence of God among us by his spirit. What makes the church glorious is that she reflects the glory of God. Each jewel is unique in how it refracts the light. Thus, each church can find a unique way to reflect the glory of God to each other and to the world. You may have heard me tell this story before, but I'll tell you again. In my first couple of months here in Madison, as I uh, landed here with my family, trying to uh, start a church from scratch and feeling quite a bit of anxiety about that, I saved a Word doc on my desktop entitled Daily Goal. And on that doc was written in 48-point font, these words, to establish the mediatory presence of Christ in urban and university Madison. To establish the mediatory presence of Christ in urban and university Madison. That was to remind me of my daily goal, to remind me of what success looks like. It's not money raised or people in attendance or milestones crossed, but as, as we are embodying the presence of God to our city. That's what a church is. What makes the church the church is the fact that God dwells among us, even through such ordinary means as word and prayer and sacraments and community with one another. And so, friends, as I'm in my last couple of months, I want to remind you again. What makes this church glorious is not that I am here. 
or not that you are here, but that God is here. And that he promises to be even when just two or three of us are gathered together, which is encouraging on a day like today when half our people are gone. Friends, God is who, that, that's true glory. The church is true glory because it has the presence of God. And one day, every eye will see just how precious the body of Christ is. Secondly, the vision tells us that the church should be a place of security. Not only a place of glory, but a place of security. Look at verse 12. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Brothers and sisters, this is a vision of a fortified, safe, secure city. And that is a symbol that the church will one day dwell secure. And this, again, is so significant because the church of the first century did not feel secure. Right, throughout the book of Revelation, they've been threatened by fierce persecution from without, by false prophets from within. These adversaries have been symbolized for us as beasts and monsters that are all captained by our greatest adversary, the great dragon, which is an image of Satan who will do anything to destroy the church of God. It's been clear throughout that there is a great war going on between God and Satan, between angels and demons, and the churches have felt anything but safe. But notice when the wall is measured in verse 17, it comes to 144 cubits, which is over 200 feet. And actually, scholars aren't, are, are divided whether that is to, to be the height of the wall or the thickness of the wall. Either way... A wall that's 200 feet high or 200 feet thick. It's an over-the-top symbol of safety. And the number 144, you've probably heard it before, remember? From the 144,000, which was Revelation's symbol of the complete church of all times and all places. All the people of God that form a vast multitude from every tribe, tongue, and people. The idea is that there is complete security for the complete church. Complete security for the complete church. Now, this is a vision of the future security of the church, but it is trickier to determine how we are to anticipate that now in the present. Because the book of Revelation and the rest of the Bible and the history of the church and our own experiences all testify that we are not promised bodily security in this life. We know it, we are not immune to suffering or pain or sickness or evil or death just because we are Christians. So that can't be the application. But I, I think this is God's way of reminding the church back then and now that, yes, one day we will dwell secure with God, body and soul. But until then, our souls are as secure in him now as they ever will be. Right? All the language of Scripture points to this great fact. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot touch the soul. 
The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.16, Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Or in Romans 8, the Apostle Paul writes, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No. And all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Or Jesus, again in John 10. He said of the church, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. See, this is security of the soul right now, even while we sojourn. Unless you think that this eternal security of the soul right now is reserved for a, for a special cast of super saints or extra holy people, would you notice that all the monuments of the city are named after sinners like you and me? The 12 gates are named for the twi- 12 tribes of Israel. <laughs> I combined 12 and tribe. Yeah, the 12 gates are named for the 12 tribes of Israel. You mean even Simeon? You mean even the guy who sold his brother into slavery and then lied to his father about it? Yeah, even Simeon. Even Reuben? Not this Reuben. Biblical Reuben who forfeited his birthright as the firstborn because he defiled his father's bed? Yes, even Reuben. And then the 12 foundations of the walls are named after the 12 apostles. Wait, even even Matthew, the tax collector? Peter, the denier, and Thomas, the doubter, and Bartholomew and Thaddeus? Who even are those guys? Yes, every single one of them. Eugene Peterson sums up the significance of this in his commentary. Listen to what he says. He says, There's nothing so evil in my unfaithfulness and nothing so obscure about my life that is not even now being fashioned into a foundation stone or an entrance gate of heaven. When St. John saw the names of the twelve tribes inscribed in the gates of pearl and the twelve apostles inscribed on the foundation stones, he knew, and he makes us know, that everything in history is retrievable. Or I might add the word, redeemable. What makes the church a place of eternal security is the fact that it is a place of amazing grace. Because your security is not based upon your work or your righteousness or your faithfulness, but on Christ. Security is not earned by the virtuous. It is received as a gift to sinners like you and me who trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And brothers and sisters, that is good news for an insecure world. So we're a place of glory. We're a place of security. Thirdly and lastly, this vision tells us that the church should be a place of mission. A place of mission. This vision is replete with missional language and symbolism to show that the church never, ever just exists for itself, but for the life of the world. Notice that the city has 12 entrances. It's a lot of entrances. 12 entrances. And even though there are gates, it says they will never be shut. 
This is a symbolic way of saying that right now, in the present, there are ample opportunities and avenues for people to come into the church, the body of Christ. And they do. Verses 24 to 26 says that the nations are streaming to the glorious light of the city, kings of nations even. And they're all bringing all their own glory and honor in order to worship and give glory to God. This is the fulfillment of Isaiah 60, of nations streaming to the light of God's glory. So you see the the missional nature of the church by, by what is streaming in, but also by what is streaming out. It's the river of life. These waters of life, they flow from the presence of God himself, meaning he is the source of life himself. This river flows right down the middle of the street. It's not hard to access. (laughs) Right down the middle of the street. And everywhere the river goes, on each side of the river, there are trees of life. No longer just one tree, multiple trees of life with super abundant fruit that just keep reproducing fruit over and over and over again. In the leaves of the tree of life, what does it say? For the healing of the nations. Water and fruit, two of the most basic necessities of life, are shown in superabundance in order to illustrate symbolically the nature of our salvation. In other words, we need saving from our sins just like we need food and water. And salvation comes from God himself. Whoever receives of it will find soul satisfaction, will find healing they have found nowhere else in this world. I think this is a vivid reminder to the first century churches and to us that no matter how bad it gets, no matter how much we are misunderstood or mistreated, we never, ever turn inward. We never forget our missionary calling to the world. Because through us flows life-giving salvation. Through us, the nations will be healed, believe it or not. The gospel of the kingdom of God is meant to be shared. Like the best meal you had recently that you can't stop talking about. Like the best movie you just saw or the best album you just listened to, right? The joy is not complete until you share its goodness with others. So God has chosen to share his life with the world through this little thing called the church. And so we never, ever, ever, ever just exist for ourselves, but for others. We are blessed in order to be a blessing to the world. We are given living water in order to share it with our thirsty neighbors. We are given the bread of heaven in order to share it with our hungry friends. We exist to be a mission with God for the healing of the whole world. My sermon title uh, is, of course, a, a bit of a double entendre, the end of the church. Because so many today are declaring the end of the church, are they not? Backed up with uh, all these stats of membership decline and ex-evangelicals and people leaving the church in droves. And I get it. I understand. There's so much that is broken about the church that needs to be reckoned with. But brothers and sisters, the end of Revelation paints a very different picture of the end of the church. Our story does not end in shame, but in glory. Our story does not end in happenstance, but in sovereign security. 
And our story does not end in fallow fields, but in a vast missional harvest. So, let's shape the church today after the glorious vision of this end, and no other. So, back to my opening story. You're April, (laughs) and this is the vision of April's mom. Let's become now what we will one day turn out to be. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we are fully aware that we as the church are not fully what we should be yet. But we also thank you that we are not what we once were because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ has touched into our lives. So I pray, Lord, in this mix of the already and the not yet, as we struggle to find our way forward, I do pray that by your grace and by your spirit, with your help alone, we would become more and more who we already are in Christ. We would become just a little bit more uh, uh, embodying the vision of that future reality, even now in the present. Lord, not just for us, for the good of our neighbors, for the good of Madison, for the good of the world. Lord, make us so. Make us the radiant bride of Christ. Thank you that your love is so, you love your bride so much and your love transforms us into the end when we will stand complete in you. Lord, help us until that day. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.